0: <laughs> welcome to Pod Academy. Hello, and welcome to Rupture Crisis Transformation, Pod Academy series looking at new perspectives in the field of U.S. studies. This podcast, Technologies of Crisis, is hosted by Zara Dinan. It's a discussion preceded by three papers that, in various different ways, look at narratives of American technologies that proclaim that change is too fast for us and that allow for the old notion of progress to get in the way of thinking about what it's actually like to live in the 21st century. Before we join the main talks, here's Chair Zara Dinan speaking to Pod Academy's Lucy Bradley about the aims of the event.
1: Essentially, it was to think about ways to Consider the kind of cycles of technology in terms of um, obsolescence and change and transformation. Um, to push back on some of the ways that uh, technology is produced in terms of progress and kind of uh, life getting ever faster, and the way it sort of disenfranchises uh, the uh, the individual in terms of uh, kind of knowing about the devices they use and the way that their lives are um, produced through technology. And the talks that we had uh, talked about. Various aspects of data and information and kind of new formations of the subject in relation to technology, but all to push back on narratives of crisis uh, and rupture and transformation.
2: Why does um, technology getting faster mean that it disenfranchises people?
1: Technology changes at a rate which makes it very hard for people whose kind of jobs or study isn't about technology to keep up. So it comes it becomes increasingly hard to know how something works if by the time you've understood how that thing works, you're kind of given a new iteration or a new version that works differently. And because of that, uh, the kind of we as individuals are produced as subjects that aren't very knowledgeable about the systems and devices that we interact through and with. So one of the problems with uh, speed as a narrative about technology and progress, that kind of always future orientation of narratives about technology, is it doesn't give us a chance to think or learn about how the technologies that we use work. Uh, Not just the technologies that we use, but also the technologies that we don't see, the kind of systems that we're part of that aren't visible to us. Um, So things like surveillance uh, by the NSA, which uh, kind of Snowden suddenly makes visible to us. Um so it's about finding spaces and critical conversations that we can have that help us see those machinations.
2: Between generations does it also cause rifts not in terms of conflicts but in terms of them not being liter- literate mm. technologically in the same way and does that affect how they interact with each other?
1: I think the intergenerational divide in terms of knowledge about technology is something is a narrative that itself perpetuated Problematically really and and that an idea of a digital native is is a kind of, of an incredibly complex category that isn't necessarily true a uh, A child that knows they can swipe an iPad knows that because an iPad is designed to be intuitive for for humans that want to touch things, not because the child is literate in technology, and so I think First of all, the the way the generations are narrativized in terms of kind of young people knowing stuff that old people don't is, is already kind of problematic and, and mostly untrue, but also so that there isn't actually these massive generational divides, because um, Claire Birchall referred to this in her paper, we're all being produced as data subjects, and, and if we begin if we break down if we focus on the differences between categories of people within that subject, we, we will never kind of have a an, a collective agency through which we can resist certain practices of um, surveillance or uh, data mining that, that are difficult or, un- or problematic for us.
2: Could you just quickly sum up what open data is and how it impacts people's lives perhaps on an everyday basis but also in the longer term? Is
1: Partly this is about um, access to data so transparency in terms of being aware of the data that is held about us as individual subjects and this might be the data that you produce in terms of your social media profiles but it also be the data that's attached to your record as a citizen so your national uh, health service data in this country or um you know your kind of travel log data in terms of your passport there's various ways in which it's important in part it's partly how you become a statistic which uh, informs uh, governments on how they may create uh, future policies. so the the kind of promise of big data is that it will give us a kind of ever tidier ways of making political decisions because you have ever more information, which means that you're less likely to, to kind of make the wrong decision. But the problem with this is there's no kind of real space in which to think about the anomalies of that. The reference to open data that Claire Birchall makes in her talk is partly that this data is too big for us as individuals to kind of pass and understand and then we rely on someone to narrativise that data for us and immediately it creates particular biases or assumptions that aren't actually as open as it's kind of sold to us as being.
0: Zara started by framing the talk to the audience before introducing the three speakers. Each will speak for 10 to 15 minutes before an open discussion.
1: Um, this panel is called Technologies of Crisis um, but we're a- Uh, referring to particular kinds of technologies. uh, which Obviously, technologies in itself is a a kind of fairly massive term. Um, So we're talking about new media technologies, digital technologies, the cultural conditions of mediation, and the kinds of social relations and subjects that these technologies produce, enable, and are being. The newness of new technologies is, um, and this is certainly a truism of at least the kind of marketing of technology, um, the newness of new technologies is built in. Devices and technolog- technological habits have ever shorter durées, in predictable cycles of obsolescence. In this way, issues of rupture and transformation, which might relate to crisis or be in response to conditions of crisis, um, are endemic to contemporary technoculture. This is a kind of fact of contemporary technoculture, are issues of rupture, change, uh, transformation. They are its way of working successfully. So today's papers, although different in subject and and kind of methodology from each other perhaps, all offer critical interventions in narratives of technological impermanence and impregnability. In particular, the papers today will engage with the specific political, cultural contingencies of American narratives of technologies that proclaim that change is too fast for us, the user subject, Um, and that allow an old rhetoric of progress to get in the way of attending to the actual situation of things, to the condition of living in the 21st century. Uh, So in a piece for the 2003 edition of the New Media Reader, um, and I'm going to quote Lev Manovich, who is uh, in the abstract in your programme, so I'm just doing a little bit of reading out here. Um, The speed with which new technologies are assimilated in the United States makes them invisible almost overnight. They become an assumed part of everyday existence, something which does not seem to require much reflection. Um, and there's a, a kind of different angle, but a similar provocation in some recent work by Laurie Emerson, uh, writing about net neutrality. And she's kind of conducting a media archaeological sort of reading of the infrastructure of the internet. And she uh, is kind of identifying this current crisis of governance and the constitution of um, the internet infrastructure in in the history of the internet itself, rather than in the present debate about net neutrality. And she urges on her reader kind of new acts of attention to histories, to long gradual histories of technology. And she says, or she asks, what does it really matter if we don't know the technical specifications of the internet? As long as it continues to work, what difference does it make whether we understand it or not? It matters because we've become so used to the usual narrative about how the internet is an American invention and sometimes, therefore, one that is inherently free, open and empowering, that we are immune to seeing how this network of networks is working on us rather than us on it. So this kind of position, I guess, is the provocation for the panel uh, to think about technologies of crisis or crisis in technologies in an American context um, and... Uh, this hopefully kind of frames the knowledge that we'll be producing collectively across the papers for my own part on this panel um i wanted to brief it, briefly meditate uh on some thoughts meditate on some thoughts on slowness um as a response to this need for a different type of attention mainly in reference to the film boyhood so i'm now going to kind of exit from uh this particular technological framing briefly <laughs> Um, So this is quite a kind of local uh, mediation on technology and slowness, and this is not something that will necessarily be picked up in the papers. It's kind of an addition to uh, the work of the speakers. And then I'll introduce the three speakers, and then we'll have questions. Uh, So, narratives of rupture and crisis have dominated discussion about America and American culture in the 21st century. From 9-11 to the 2008 market crash, uh, Katrina in 2005, and the kind of cold uh, weather front of 2013-14, Critiquing the allure of a procession of apocalypses, Rob Nixon's 2011 slow violence argued that we must address recent history as part of a longer duration. We must situate the spectacle within the long view. Nixon urges us to engage in thinking about, uh, and quote, a violence that is neither spectacular nor instantaneous, but rather incremental and accretive, its calamitous repercussions playing out across a range of temporal scales. Nixon's specific concerns are environmental, Uh, And technology is only of a concern to Nixon, really, insofar as it's part of the problem. He kind of situates technological change towards the end of this long view and says that it's part of the way in which uh, we are distanced from thinking about uh, the kind of slowness of change. Um, So technology makes us think too quickly. Um, And throughout the papers, we might hear about some of the ways that current technologies do obfuscate opportunities to attend to incremental and accretive violence that is wrought by various institutions of power, mostly through said technologies. Media are, after all, in the business of effacing their own operations. But the critical approaches that we will witness and respond to enact attention across a range of temporal scales. The history of digital culture can be short through one lens and long through another. To properly witness digital media in an everyday, we need to be flexible with how we think of speed. And I think that's something that was addressed in the keynote this morning and in Seb, was one of our speaker's questions, about that kind of history of networks and the different iterations of that term. Link, Latter's film, Boyhood. This film is a film that demands its audience to be flexible with speed. It kind of distinctly addresses issues of temporal scale, although not on the kind of epic scale that uh, Nixon speaks of. The film is sold as 12 Years in 3 Hours. With regards its production and final cut, the film could be said to exemplify what Nixon describes as a cultural milieu of digitally speeded up time and foreshortened narrative. That is the kind of raison d'etre of this film. More complexly, the film appears to offer its audience a distinct (coughs) time-lapse techno-time, a temporal spatial index of incremental technological change. Although 12 years is not an epic time, uh, it is a distinct period, and it enables a different kind of attention to most media spectacle. The film follows a family over 12 years. Um, it begins after the parents have separated and charts the children's and adults' lives through the son's adolescence. So this is him uh, at, sort of at the beginning of the film. Um, the film and narrative are fictional constructs, um, but it has a natural feel to it. Uh, in some respects, nothing much happens. In other respects, everything does. And because we watch um, a kind of organic development, uh, there is a kind of real time to the film that is sort of problematically framed through the fictional construct of the film. And this also has to do with the casting and actors who we've met in Linklater's sort of intervening films, as it were. Um, despite its everyday subject matter, boyhood feels like a luxury. It's part of a cultural moment, this one, in which home movies have become public movies, and the genre of documenting the everyday is reworked in social media algorithms. Watching this constructed reality, a fiction that is nonetheless an edit of 12 years of a life, is a particular kind of prospect. It's an odd temporality as chapters of a life are cut together and the exact size of all the ellipses between them are unknown. Um, They are unknown, that is, unless you are the kind of audience uh, who can pick out uh, how time has changed according to what technological device is in the frame. So uh, we move from the Game Boy to various Apple Mac PCs, from the kind of desktop to the laptop. Uh, there's mobile phones, smartphones and the kind of last few sequences include lots of FaceTime conversations on different devices. Uh, so boyhood isn't about technology uh, but it makes visible digital media as everyday life and it shows an everyday life always in media. It gives us digital media as a mode of being in time, as a kind of a being of mediation. And probably a little bit over indebted to recent work by Alex Galloway and Joanna Zelinska and Sarah Kemble on ideas of mediation here. Um, In a review of the film for the New York Times, Manola Dargis notes that the film, and this is a quote, the film's visual style is precise, unassuming to the point of seeming invisibility. Such a description draws attention to the material contingencies of an effect of seamlessness, the multiple ways that seamlessness is not totally attainable, it's always almost or nearly or seemingly seamless. Um, Boyhood is not just about media, but it's kind of not quite seamlessness tells us that it is media. Uh, To situate the film in terms of everyday life and mediation, we need to attend to the ways that the film is put together, not just to consider how the film represents the digital or narrativises particular technocultural habits, but to look for the ways in which the film itself is a process of mediation and articulates certain technological possibilities and shifts. The everyday mode of this film enables us to think about mediation not actually in terms of change, although change takes place, um, and not in terms of rupture and crisis, but rather as habitual praxis. Thinking in terms of the digital every day is an act of not thinking through the rhetoric of the digital's association with disembodied speed and perpetual newness. So unlike narratives of crisis uh, that that kind of dominate thought about uh, new technologies, Uh, The elliptical lapses in Linklater's film index continuity as much as change and situate technologies as processes of mediation that produce different kinds of subjects within different historical moments, but that do not wrench the subject from incident to incident. Whereas narratives of crisis and rupture render us all, the user and subjects in media, inarticulate and ill-informed and lagging behind, propping up what Laurie Emerson calls in that work on net neutrality a spectre of expertise... A film such as Link Letters" affords the opportunity to witness, recognise and engage with technology as it's acting on uh, and acting around us. Okay, So the papers that we're now going to hear uh, all address an accretion of digital modes of mediation and the complex political and social subjects that such accretion produces. OK, so uh, to introduce our speakers, um, I'm really pleased that all these speakers could be here and make it. Um, so, first up, we're going to have Claire Birchall, who is senior lecturer at King's College London in the Institute of North American Studies. And Claire will be talking about the uh, kind of politics of data-driven transparency and the radical potential of secrecy. Uh, next, we'll have Kristen Veal, who is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Department of Arts and Cultural Studies, University of Copenhagen. Kristen's paper is looking at artworks in reference to information crises and the frontier myth. And I think all these papers are going to kind of really come together with some of the discussion that's already taken place today. Um, and our final speaker is Seb Franklin, who is a lecturer in contemporary literature at King's College London. And Seb will be speaking on the ways materiality and metaphor intersect in the systems of capture, exploitation, and expulsion that undergird the information age. Uh, so now I'll hand over to Claire.
2: Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me and for the organisers, for having the space to, to work through these really important issues. Um, so, as is just explained, you know, this event today is dedicated to mediations of US decline, depictions of an America in crisis. And I want to spend my time today looking at one much lauded solution to many commercial, political and social problems, um, namely greater transparency. You know what will fix the financial system, uh, curb the influence of money on politics, or even you know halt global warming. Well, transparency is sometimes the answer. Um, so, which is why a kind of different um, title for this talk that I put up here is the you know whatever crisis. It's, it's transparency is invoked whenever you know different kinds of crises are uh, talked about. So because of the ubiquity of computing and the volume of information to be communicated, the ascendant form of transparency today, particularly when it comes to government transparency, is data-driven. And as an illustration of this, uh, we can see that one of Obama's first moves on entering the White House was to set up the um, website data.gov, Whoops, too far. There you go. So, which is a portal uh, to raw data sets from government agencies. Now, while at one level it's hard to argue against any provision of data that was previously held only by the, se- by the state, or available you know, in principle but difficult to access in practice, it's also necessary to recognise uh, the logic at work here. So rather than addressing secrecy as a political problem, So instigating a different style of politics, a real engagement with the public's concerns or a radical understanding of accountability or ethics. Instead, that is of reversing many of the secretive practices of the Bush administration that had caused concern. You know, so invocation of the state secret privilege, the practice of extraordinary rendition, the use of drone strikes and covert cyber weapons. Um, a punitive approach to whistleblowers, and as we now know, the mining of uh, worldwide communications metadata. Instead of reversing those things, Obama's promised transparency primarily involved the establishment of this web interface and a promise to release timely data sets and information on it. So data.gov contains over 300,000 raw and geospatial data sets, over 1,000 data tools, and involves um, 171 agencies and sub-agencies. Now, the openness of all this data is obviously meaningless until it is witnessed. And it's this sort of you know, ideological call upon us or interpolation as data subjects or publics that's key here for me. So what I'm interested in is how this mooted solution to crisis produces particular kinds of citizenship and subjectivity that I'm going to go on to argue are antithetical to the kind of collective action needed for an effective response to crisis, to any crisis, whatever crisis. So the demarcated agency on offer here characterises the experience of the contemporary data subject. So... When I use this term data subject, what I mean here is people who monitor, exploit or produce data, but whom also become trackable and knowable via the digital traces that they leave behind, i.e. all of us in some ways, probably. So they're not those on, they're, they are not only those on whom data works, but those that work the data. In Foucault's terms, this involves a distinction between modes of subjectivation, how the subject self-forms, and subjection, how the subject is formed. Although, of course, Foucault makes it really clear that these are intimately interdependent. So the big data released by government requires new skills from citizens and a new kind of unelected and unregulated mediator, actors who can analyse data and those that can create apps, data visualisations, and platforms to aid navigation and analysis. So this form of transparency creates a data public, an imagined public able, as Evelyn Ruppert puts it, to analyse and do things with data. So the burden of monitoring, regulating and communicating the transactions of the state moves from the state to the responsible citizen. So in order to fully participate, we are asked to be auditors, analysts, translators, programmers agency becomes reliant upon technological as well as analytical competence. But there's an additional imperative at work here because doing things with data is not just a pastime of vigilant netizens wishing to keep the state in check. The data public includes entrepreneurs and consumers because government posits data as a resource ripe for mining and commodification. So the remit of the US Presidential Innovation Fellows, for example, is to unleash data from the vaults of the government as fuel for innovation, as they put it. So, with this aim in mind, they've organised um, a series of data paloozas, you know, so gatherings of entrepreneurs, software developers, and policymakers to discuss new ways of harnessing the energy of different data streams, you know, health, um, energy, education, global development, and finance. How can that raw data be made profitable? So such data becomes the fuel for and the content of downloadable applications intended to aid choices in the public and private sector. You know, this is what we call the data economy. Now, I'm not claiming that the economic value of open data automatically places suspicion on the rhetoric concerning its social value, although in certain cases that may well be true. But rather what I want to examine is the way in which this dual function carves out a particular position for subjects So the model of data-driven transparency that I'm interested in addresses citizens in three stages. So first, our vigilance is called for, demanded even, if we're going to be able to realise the social value on offer and be fully engaged political subjects. But then almost immediately, we're sort of excused from our duties, at least as mere citizens. Our vigilance is acknowledged as near impossible, as necessitating skills and free time that most ordinary citizens simply don't possess. And it's therefore outsourced to entrepreneurs. And obviously the implication here is that citizens will consider becoming such entrepreneurs, or at least you know, purchase from them, engage with them. And then finally, we're asked to buy back or sell the data that was first made available to us, for us, in a digestible form, in a market form. As one data.gov entry blog puts it, um, The idea is to help citizen consumers facing increasingly complex choices in today's marketplace. So it's this phrase, citizen consumers, that sends shivers down my spine. Anyway, as everyone. So in order to be an ideal citizen, we have to be a consumer first. A consumer not only of government data, but also of the responsible subjectivity therein implied. So why responsabilised? Well, because if the data is open, it becomes the fault of citizens when anomalies, abuse or corruption aren't noticed. And equally, citizens only have themselves to blame if they don't consume the data that can help them to navigate the system and the choices laid out before them. Now, if one defining feature of neoliberalism is the way in which it applies market competition to traditionally extra-economic social spheres like health or education... For the data subject, such a feature reaches in a new direction. The rationality of the market extends to the democratic contract between representatives and represented itself. So we become reliant upon the market to close the circle of democratic representation and the accountability on what, upon which it's based. So transparency, therefore, is at risk of producing a delimited relationship between government and governed, representatives and represented, by encouraging a subjectivity conducive to and accepting of neoliberalism. Now, if the neoliberal subject is, as Wendy Brown writes, one who strategizes for her or himself among various social, political and economic options, not one who strives with others to alter or organise these options, We can see how, even armed with the information provided through transparency or open government, the data subject is a weak position from which to enact or coalesce counter-hegemonies because it's reliant upon continuing the forms of control to which it's subjugated. So the data subject is not only dependent financially but socially in order to be able to navigate the system and politically, democratically, to activate representation and accountability. Now, for anyone concerned about the limited or perhaps interrupted political agency produced by neoliberal formations, there's a real question here about what form transparency should take and the kinds of social and political relations, technologies of transparency and gender. Now, of course, you might think that given the recent revelations about the NSA, that we should actually be more worried about covert than open data. But what I want to propose is that they both contribute to the construction of a depoliticised data subject. Now any mainstream pushback against the NSA has been expressed in terms of unconstitutional privacy infringements. And while I'd agree that this move towards data valence might indeed be something to resist... The appeal to privacy sits uneasily with the de-individualising character of mass-covert data mining. So the fear expressed here is that the state sees the mass as individuals, each of whom has a right to privacy. But the way in which data mining works means that it's not particularly interested in the actions of the majority of individual subjects, except in as much as those subjects contribute to a background pattern upon which an evolutionary algorithm can work to recognise minority anomalies. And... Obviously, I don't want you to conflate that with the argument, the common argument that, you know, if you've, got, if you've done nothing wrong, then you've got nothing to fear from surveillance. I'm definitely not saying that. Rather, it points towards our role as data and how that might shape the state's view of citizenship, politics and agency. So the offence here is perhaps less the intrusion into personal space and more the configuration of individual political agents as subjects into, into flat data. It's not that we're being spied on that is of most concern in this view, but that unless our actions are flagged up as, a, as extreme outliers, we're not considered fully formed political agents worthy of anything more than bolstering an algorithm for data analysis. Now, this is a problem with a form of visibility that renders our political agency as invisible. And one day... I want to suggest, you know, we'll dream of being spied upon, of being worthy of old-fashioned infiltration and espionage. You know, being spied upon will mean that our politics are being taken seriously. So to conclude, it's not a case of deciding whether we are more worried about being responsibilized without power by data-driven transparency or by being flatly monitored by data valence, but of understanding the different ways in which both are part of the data public imagined by the state. Now, in my work, I'm trying to come up with a form of transparency that doesn't just make already inequitable systems more efficient or outsource responsibility to non-state actors or trust the market to close the democratic contract. And at the same time, I'm trying to conceptualise a secrecy of the left, a secrecy that works for social justice rather than state security and geopolitical advantage. So rather than acts of publicity, such as legal marches or online petitions against surveillance or supporting open government technologies, the left might need to meet such calls with opacity. And this would mean resisting being reduced to and understood as data as defined by the state. So the identity of the surveyed data object neoliberal data subject is not one that is allowed to interact with data in the creation or exploration of radical collective politics. In contrast, we might imagine a collectivity that puts not privacy first but rather a demand that data accumulation serve horizontal and community-forming transparency rather than its hierarchical manifestation or that asserts a fundamental right to opacity with opacity understood here after um, the Martinican philosopher Edouard Glissant as a resistance to being understood and recognisable within an already established and limited political and epistemological um, framework.
3: That's all I've got to say. Thank you. Thank you, Claire, and thank you, Sarah, for the invitation. Um, It's been a really... Exciting morning and I hope I have something to contribute to the, not only this panel, but also the general uh, debate. So, um, yeah, my my title is To Live Without Islets, Information Crisis in the Frontier Myth. Um, And I'm just going to to start with with, um, a quotation by um, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, from St. Paul Sardes' play No Exit*, which is from uh, 1944, and it depicts hell as three deceased characters locked in a room for eternity, forced to observe one another and themselves. The French title, huis clos, translates as behind closed doors, connoting both the situation of entrapment, privacy, and what in English is called in-camera, literally in the chamber, that is a court case without the presence presence of the public or media. This situation of constant visibility to oneself and others of too much information from which you cannot shut yourself off is in Sartre's play described as hell. And I've brought this um, quote uh, with me where one of the characters says, Could hell be described as too much of anything without a break? A variety of moderation and balance instruments we use to keep us from boiling in any inferno of excess, whether it be cheesecake or ravenous sex. And the other character says, "What are you talking about?" And he replies, "Your eyelids, you we move ours up and down, blinking, we call it. It's like a small black shutter that clicks down and makes a break. Everything goes black, one's eyes are moistened. You can't imagine how restful, refreshing it is. Four thousand little rests per hour, four thousand little respites. Just think, so that's the idea. I'm to live without eyelids. Don't act the fool, you know what I mean. No eyelids, no sleep. It follows, doesn't it?" I shall never sleep again. But then, how shall I endure my own company? I want to take this condition of no eyelids as the starting point for my contribution to this panel on technologies of crisis, thinking about the notion of information crisis by turning to two artworks that address different types of current information challenges, the films I Love Alaska and Hassan tracking transients. Obviously, this is far too much material for the time I'm allotted, I know, uh, but I want to throw it in there to add to the discussion more than sort of give a, a rounded-off paper with a beginning, a middle, and an end. So, But let me stay with, with, with Sartre for, for a little while uh, longer. Um, in a ta- talk on, on the FBI files on Sartre and Camus, uh, given that the Maison Francaise Columbia University in 2013 and later published in Prospect, scholar in French culture and philosophy Andy Martin argues that see if I can, narrative, philosophy, and espionage share a common genesis. They arise out of a lack of information. Sartre's expectation of a world of total information would kill them all stone dead. There would be no need of the FBI, novelists, or French philosophers. Existentialism and absurdism insist on an asymmetry between being and information. Agent James M. Underhill, who heroically pursued the elusive Albert Canu, encapsulated the theory in a resonant phrase, the file does not show the final disposition. This argument that aligns narrative philosophy and espionage is interesting to take as a starting point for consideration of the condition of what is termed information overload by some or the wet dream of total information by others and by which I mean the condition of information processing in a time of constant data harvesting and big data ambitions to predict the future, which poses new challenges for archiving mechanisms and processing capabilities, but also for our conception of privacy. In his short piece in Prospect, Martin argues that J. Edgar Hoover's FBI of the post-war period, who investigated Sartre and Camus for their communist inclinations, display the same modernist critique of narrative as does existentialism. From the conviction that being a communist was a latent in the Freudian sense condition, the Bureau became psychoanalysts and hermeneutes in the aim to understand the subject of their investigation, in this instance Sartre and Camus. But it's Martin's claim that in turn the FBI's approach also came to mirror the philosophy of existentialism and absurdism. Martin points to the anti-conspiratorial inclination of the FBI, for instance, in accepting the theory of Lee Harvey Oswald as the lone writer that kills Kennedy, and explains this as a reluctance to look for plot or a great theory, and rather accept contingency and chaos. FBI might search for secret code and meaning and operate in a world of potential paranoia and conspiracy theories, but they reject the teleological narrative, echoing Sartre's critique of narrative. What they fear and object to is meaning, and finally the plot or narrative, they are anti-narrativists, Martin argues. It may seem a surprising argument insofar as we, no doubt induced by Hollywood narrative, are so used to seeing intelligence services as grand conspiracy theorists who hunt for imaginative plots. However, the assertion that espionage in the heyday of the Cold War in fact had an anti-conspiratorial streak and that this can more fundamentally be conceived of as an anti-narrative inclination that is philosophically linked to existentialism and absurdism and related to a Cold War environment characterized by a lack of exact information and the hovering potential of paranoid interpretation overload, points to an interesting interesting constellation between information, narrative and surveillance that may be used as an entry point for thinking further about our present cultural condition of information and surveillance overload and the narrative forms that these induce. As science and technology scholar Virginia Eubanks, among others, have shown, the American frontier myth has driven the technological advances throughout the second half of the 20th century, thus also that of conquering the excessive amounts of information that we generate and regarding these as a resource to be mined. Eubanks refers to Frederick Jackson Turner's seminal essay The Significance of the Frontier in American History from 1893, in which Turner identifies how the American character was shaped by the pioneer ideals of conquest, flexibility, democracy and individuality. Eubank argues how these qualities that pay tribute to progress, discovering and finding new ways of life were transposed to the myth of the new frontier, that of technology, such as the automobile, the airplane, the telephone, the television, atomic power and space travel, and thus not surprisingly also to the social and material structure of the Internet as it materialized in the 1990s. This myth of the frontier that needs to be conquered can be said to be part of the same logic of lack of information, that Martin points to as driving espionage. There's uncharted land that needs to be conquered, information that needs to be found, mapped and mined. Although concepts such as Manuel Castells' notion of space of flows or Deleuze and Guattari's assemblage have helped nuance the understanding of how the virtual realm recreates social and political biases and power structures that we know from the physical world, the frontier myth seems to be deep-seated in our cultural imagination. Also, when it comes to thinking about information. It can more recently be found to reoccur in, for instance, a Google eBooks ambition to digitize every publication into a world library, the NSA surveillance schemes that seem to have the ambition of reducing risk of terrorism by total information, and the ambition of creating smart cities that are flexible and able to respond to the need of its citizens even before the needs become conscious in the mind of the individual. In the mass collection of data by corporations and agencies of the state that promises to make the world's populations increasingly traceable and, its hope, predictable, we thus seem to find traces of the frontier myth. This time it is not the wilderness of the West or outer space that is to be conquered, but the new and uncharted possibilities of total information that gives rise to optimism. However... Embedded in the implication of what is often referred to with the ambiguous term big data is also a series of other implications that connote crisis. The logic of big data often operates with a rhetoric of wanting to reduce complexity and make the world easier and more seamless to navigate, allowing us to potentially gain command of flu epidemics, criminal acts, environmental disasters and terrorist attacks attacks through the accumulation of data. However, the collapse of Lehman Brothers and much of the financial crisis that follows was certainly accelerated by big data analysis in the form of high-frequency trading. The extreme speed with which trade algorithms are able to react to information and rumors, and the scale of banking data, which means that even the smallest changes in share prices can generate massive-scale profits, produce global volatility and personal vulnerabilities that continue to play themselves out in the wake of the global financial crisis. This risky handling of profits and losses in large-scale data banks, as well as recent information scandals, including the WikiLeaks and NSA revelations, have caused experts and observers to question not only the statistical validity of the diagnosis and prognosis conjured from big data, but also the broader implications of their large-scale determination of information in our societies. A fundamental uncertainty as to the implications of the way we handle information seems to run parallel to the reverberations of the frontier myth. Going back to Martin's identification of an affinity between information, narrative and surveillance, we may ask what are the implications of this identification of a condition that on the one hand is characterized by a vast increase in available information and on the other hand by a sense of uncertainty that is not reduced as the amount of information increases. And it's here that I want to bring in the two artworks that in different ways seem to address the relationship between big data narrative and surveillance. The first artwork that I want to highlight uh, here is, is I Love Alaska. It's a series of short films by the two Dutch artists Sander Pluck and Leonard Engelberts. They take their starting point in the 2006 incidents, where the personal search queries of 650,000 America online users... Uh, ended up on the internet and became public. It takes as its main character one of these users who we get to know through her search entri- entries which draws the contours of a uh, uh, a woman uh, obsessed with her health and, and um, also very insecure. Uh, she um, has a snoring husband uh, and she cheats on him with a man she meets online and fantasizes about Alaska. So what we get here is these images from Alaska, and, and then there's a voiceover that can't hear, but um, which reads um, her search queries. Um, and interestingly, the images of of the barren Alaska, truly one of the geograf- geographical frontiers left in the world, here merge with a voiceover, which which uh, reads these um, these uh, uh, internet searches. It thus strives on the unknown and stimulates our curiosity to form a narrative that remains virtual and is never confirmed. Just as we know that Alaska exists and possibly looks like what the images shows, we never see this user 711391. And the other example, it's um, by New York-based Hassan Eli, um, and it's called Tracking Transients, the All World Project. It came about as as a response to Eli uh, mistakenly having been placed on a terrorist watch list, becoming the subject of an FBI investigation. As a response to this, Eli set up a a website that makes his precise location available and where he continually posts images of the beds he sleeps in, the meals he eats, the toilets he uses and so forth. For Eli, this becomes part of a tactic of protect, protection from unwanted scrutiny but by putting everything out there in a claim of nothing to hide and nothing to see, which turns privacy into a, a performance. Here, the excessive amount of information that we encounter about Eli causes a different kind of privacy to arise, one that becomes apparent only in its absence. In different ways, both of these examples are sealed with a renegotiation of the frontier myth. I Love Alaska maintains a seemingly traditional narrative, and the chill of its findings lies in the fact that we actually form what feels like a very personal impression of user 71391 through only knowing her search entrance. We are, as viewers, invited to create a narrative which thrives on the uneasiness that comes from an oscillation between feeling that we're given access to too much intimate information about this woman, at the same time as we know that it's only her fleeting data shadow that we encounter. As opposed to this, Elias' piece show an extreme version of the existentialist anti-narrative response, dissolving the human subject into a database that seemingly reveals everything, yet does not tell anything. In two different ways, they seem to articulate the standpoint that the conquering of the unknown only results in more uncertainty, and this is articulated also as a question of narrative form, which seems to underscore Martin's point about the link between information, narrative, and surveillance. Thank you.
4: Okay, uh, thank you to Anna and Cesara for inviting me, and um, thanks to everyone who's spoken already today and who will be speaking there's already been so many rich connections across the papers and i look forward to speaking about them more so this is um from a new project i'm working on called archaeology of capture um and it's and it's maybe the part that's in fact starting to look the most like the projects i just finished so i'm in one of those strange kind of pro- situations of kind of sort out what's new about my new thing um and i'll try and be quick i think i'm gonna have to cut some words So, in the introduction to the age of the world targets, Ray Chow evokes a tension between the self-referentiality of post-structuralist theory and ever-intensifying conditions of global dispossession in order to ask the following. If the ineluctability of linguistic self-referentiality has stemmed from a historical awareness of language as fundamental dislocation, as Foucault and other post-structuralist theorists have argued, Can such self-referentiality, however patient and vigilant, in any way help ameliorate the problems of social iniquity and injustice? Or does it simply become, and continue to derive its legitimacy as, such iniquity and injustice as symptoms? Where does the incessant bracketing of referentiality leave those cultures and identities that remain peripheralised? Can post-structuralist theory deal with exclusion and how? That's the end of the quote. Charles' response to these questions moves through and demonstrates connections across several strands of a multivalent world picture in which military strategy and the emergence of institutionalised forms of knowledge and inquiry centred on Anglo-America function in concert or in which the technologies of atomic warfare are inseparable from those of seeing. Taking Charles' analysis as a starting point, the following talk examines another valence of self-referentiality within the age of the world targets, a valence that emphasises the connections Emphasized in the Latin reticulum or net, from which each derives, between targeting, networking, and capture. Specifically, this talk examines the ways in which certain practices and concepts grounded in self referentiality emerge out of material technical arrangements, arrangements which not only facilitate particular practices, such as labour practices, methods of accessing information, and forms of communication but which also generates systemic frameworks which have come to inform some of the dominant modes of knowing and ordering in operation today. Locating these connections allows one to trace and historicise a connection between Saskia Sassen's recent work on expulsion and brutality within the systemic complexity of the global economy, and Friedrich Kittler's suggestive insistence that in the age of digital signal processing, only that which can be configured as a switching circuit exists. In the space between these two figurations of systematicity, one might locate a more fundamental connection between figures of communicational self referentiality and forms of socio economic expulsion. Where Sassen uncovers the systemic logic upon which practices of exclusion are premised, Kittler calls attention to the ways in which these logical bases are grounded in historically specific metaphors drawn from the technical media of production and distribution. A movement of fundamental concepts from paradigmatically self referential communication systems, such as electronic computers and distributed networks, to broader systems of knowledge can be seen to mark out one of the main vectors of the global creative or informational economy that, as Neferti XM Tadiar has shown, is both grounded in and functions to obfuscate dispossession and the wearing down of life. So for Tadiar, the qualitative experiential differences between the life of the creative worker, who might be a brand analyst, a Google employee or a web startup worker, and that of the unskilled women workers in global manufacturing um, plants in Mexico and China, are elided not only by the global networked character of the economic systems in which they labour, or by the abstract and logic of capital itself, but also by the very forms of theoretical analysis that ostensibly seek to account for them. In making this claim, Tadiar extends the critique levelled by Chow to a different but clearly related genre of theoretical writing, and Tadiar is basically critiquing. Um, the idea of real subsumption that's been taken up in Italian political theory, so um, Antonio Negri, Maurizio Lazzarato, and others. In making this claim, Taddeo extends the crit- oh said that already. <laughs> Both accounts, of course, echo Gyatri Spivak's critique of the universality of the worker struggle in Foucault and Deleuze's *Intellectuals and Power*, a universality which functions for Spivak and against the purported intent of its authors to emblematise a tendency within post-structuralist theory that is incapable of dealing with global capitalism, the subject production of worker and unemployed within nation-state ideologies in the centre, the increasing subtraction of the working class in the periphery, and the large-scale presence of para-capitalist labour, as well as the heterogeneous structural status of agriculture in the periphery. In addition to the theoretical archive it confronts, though, Tadiar's account departs from Chow and Spivak by registering a shift in the epistemic conditions through which labour, and by extension the labourer, is conceptualised in the global information economy. Critically, this departure appears in the form of a technological metaphor through which the worker is imagined from the point of view of their employment. Describing the capital-side conceptualisation of the ideal migrant domestic, work, domestic worker, Tadjia writes, From the side of her employment, the ideal migrant domestic worker images the archetypal robots." capable of offering emotional as well as menial help to humans without expectation of human feeling in return. Migrant women workers not uncommonly suffer various forms of physical abuse, sexual violation and even slave-like exploitation at the hands of their employers, treatment fitting with their status as maid machines or domestic technologies. The worker-machine assemblage depicted here differs in important ways from earlier conflations such as the robot double in Fritz Lang's Metropolis or the tramp in Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. Rather than the mechanical person, or the person completely embedded in machinery, in Tadjar's account one finds the worker as machine completely separate from any specific technological apparatus. In a sense, the worker is a type of machine, an information processing machine. Two further details of Tadjar's account stand out here, and emphasise the specific character of this more recent human machine. Firstly, the worker machine performs cognitive and affective tasks, as well as manual ones. Under this conceptual frame, labour is understood as information processing and output, as well as the execution of physical tasks. Secondly, this worker is an image, albeit one that determines not only the socio-economic and political status of the imaged worker, but also the material situation they are expected to endure. This socio-technical assemblage is no longer exactly that which Marx described in the Grundrisse, wherein, quote, the activity of the worker restricted to a mere abstraction of activity, is determined and governed in every respect by the movement of the machinery, not vice versa. Today, one might venture, the worker is understood from the point of view of dominant systems of knowledge as both a particular form of living labour and a particular type of machinery at the same time. This conceptualization requires a particular type of machine to take shape, namely the type of self-regulating machine of which the electronic digital computer is the most developed and visible <laughs> example, it also requires a particular concept of biological life that is historically interlinked with this class of machine. In short, this elaboration of labour, of life, is only possible when activity, whether ostensibly manual or ostensibly intellectual, is imagined as digital information processing. The archetypal robot or made machine in an ep- this diagrams an epistemic frame through which the human is imagined as a computational system and under which forms of manual, intellectual and cognitive labour are configured as differences of data type or output Rather than dis- collections of distinctive material conditions, thought through the analysis of cultural techniques. And cultural techniques um, is a mode of analysis developed by Bernard Siegert, wherein technologies function as kind of code-generating um, objects as well as coded um, objects. So, thought through the analysis of cultural techniques, the formatting of the human as self-referential information processor can be seen to operate at multiple levels within the contemporary form of global information economy that is the object of Chow, Tadiar, and Spivak's analyses. Such an image is the basic condition of possibility for more general, social-systemic concepts such as that of the information society, the network society and digital culture. For a society to be informational in character, its basic unit, the individual social actor, must be conceivable as an information processor. For culture to be digital, the social must be computational. For society to be a network, the individual must be a node or black box. This historical turn is crystallised in Kittler's assertion that the triad of things communicated—information, persons, and goods—and for Kittler, these are the, This is this is in a kind of ambitious short essay called "The History of Communication Media." The triad of things communicated, informations, persons and goods, can be reformulated in terms of information theory according to the following schema. Firstly, messages are essentially commands to which people are expected to react. Secondly, as system theory teaches, persons are not objects but addresses which make possible the assessment of further communications. Thirdly, as ethnology since Miles and Levi Strauss has taught, goods represent data in an order of exchange between said persons. And so you can see Kittler's often read as this kind of you know, a historical or, or ap- apolitical thinker, but you can trace out these kinds of moments of historical specificity that maybe point towards some kind of epistemic movement that can be read as political, I think, in his work. This conflation of message and command, personal address, and goods and data is central to the technical modes that undergird the contemporary information logics, from information structure histograms to supply chain management models, um, such as this one. This is a very early example. Um, of a system dynamics representation. And you can think here of um, these recent instances where slave labour or um, indentured labour have cropped up within the supply chains of huge companies like Walmarts. And the the argument is always, well, they can't possibly know that that's happening at the centre because each node of the supply chain is a black box um, that has to kind of take care of itself. So there's always this kind of obfuscation of dispossession that happens through these kinds of systemic representation. Hitler's assertion also points towards the historical movement through which information theoretical reformulations of the social actor directly inform many of the theoretical modes Chow and Spivak address, most explicitly through the lineage of cybernetic concepts as they are variously taken up by Roman Jakobson and Claude Lévi Strauss, Jacques Lacan, Michel Foucault, and Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari. And we're now starting to see through kind of various people's historical archival work that a lot of canonical post-structures theory is actually directly influenced by readings of computer science and information theory and cybernetics in the 40s and 50s. Finally, this image both abstracts at the level of the symbolic and differentiates at the level of the real. As Tadyar shows, drawing on the work of Ai Ong, the discourse of the creative economy masks a division in which the material work of social reproduction is outsourced to the migrant worker, while the technopreneur functions at the level of valorisable intellect and or affect. This is remarkably similar to the grounds upon which Chow compares Marxism and post structuralist theory, upon which the status of language is not unlike that of a guest worker, an exploited, colonised alien who has been indispensable in helping to hold together the host society with our hard work, but whose existence continues to be disavowed. One can identify many parallel instances of this division, such as that between creative workers, either programming or using software tools, and the workers who labour under deleterious conditions in factories such as Foxconn, in order to produce the devices upon which such tools run. So to return to Charles' question, can communication or self-referentiality in any way help ameliorate the problems of social inequity and injustice, or is it a symptom of such iniquity and injustice? If one follows the historical argument sketched above, following the contours of the epistemic shift under which the concept of language is replaced with that of communication, and the figure of linguistic self referentiality is replaced with that of informatic self regulation of the type car- characteristic of computing machines, at least since Norbert Wiener's Cybernetics or Control and Communication in the Animal and the Machine of 1948, then the answer must be that it, it is not a symptom. It is not a symptom. If not exactly a cause, the figure of the self-referential loop functions in complex assemblages with those of action, labour and thought and identity to produce the labour dynamics and geographical distributions that characterise the uneven, which is to say, the actual form of the information economy today. Thanks.
1: So, uh, I was thinking, I guess, perhaps taking some... provocation at the end to, to kind of reflect back on the papers about ideas of self-referentiality um, but perhaps reframing that slightly to think about um, a knowing of the self and knowledge in terms of um, how a self might uh, have knowledge of their subject position so things that have come up today so far in relation to the Anthropocene and kind of how we might get out of a cycle of crisis by sort of thinking expansively, um, also take attention away from present conditions. And I think uh, all the papers today have been invested in, uh, these papers of this panel have been invested in analysis of of kind of present subject uh, positions and present conditions of being. And so particularly in terms of information knowledge, and I guess so I wanted to ask you all a little bit about the kind of difference between a sort of information subject and, a, and a, a subject a knowledge a knowledgeable subject and how the knowledgeable subject might be the kind of critical position from which we can think reflectively about crisis kind of outside cycles of crisis and whether we've kind of had information problematized I think by everyone in terms of what it, the way it, it might encourage us to think about systems in abstract senses and is it knowledge then that is the counter to information is that it? separate thing? Does that recuperate a kind of knowing subject?
4: So, yeah. Do you want I'm to start? start with, yeah. I can. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you that there is there's some kind of important distinction that we have to make between information or, inf- or between information, data, and knowledge mm-hmm. maybe. Um, but I'd be wary of um, of wanting wanting to ground knowledge in some kind of just romantic concept of the of the human or the subject or something because that's in it that's itself as historically kind of problematized as any kind of later form of subjectification um, as as information processor or something um, but I certainly think that a kind of an attentiveness to the processes through which one's communication one's behaviour one's actions and um, one's interactions are kind of framed and captured. And this is why I think capture is a really important, um, or grounds a really important series of questions, because those processes, which are conceptual as well as they are um, technical, um, you know, what are the historical conditions through which one becomes thinkable as um, a, a communications node, or we can look at the history of. Um, Chicago School economics, the decision unit that we see in Gary Becker that Foucault, um, who Foucault reads in *The Birth of Biopolitics*. Those kinds of histories, I think, are important to inscribe and also to ground in the kinds of broader epistemic frames that made them possible. Um, I, I'm also interested in maybe counterposing knowledge, um, the question of opacity mm-hmm. that Claire brought up. I think opacity does become something incredibly important. Um, even as a kind of a horizon against which to think particular practices in, in the present moment. I was going to say that really, just
2: thinking about resisting this knowledgeable subject mm. and the way that Glisson writes about the right to opacity is very much thinking about, and he's thinking particularly about racialized others, and he's thinking about that moment when you get called <laughs> into a discourse and that there's terms of um, being understood and entering into that um, epistemological framework have already been set and that opacity is one way in which you can preserve <laughs> I'm getting into humanist language here, but you know, is a, a way of retreating from that and um, yeah so I think I think in that way opacity might be a different kind of way of resisting that that knowledgeable mm-hmm. subject because you're just then you're just being knowledgeable by somebody's mm. knowledge. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah.
3: Mm, yeah, no, uh, leading on from that, I, I think what you, you said something about agency also being dependent on mm. on sort of skills or knowing, uh, also understanding programming mm. or sort of how the data... Well, at least agency work. as
2: understood by the state. Yeah. So not necessarily some other reconstructed kind of agency that we might imagine mm. yeah
3: yeah no and I think yeah. what but your notion of opacities is really interesting in in, in on those lines and, mm. and um I'd be I'd be interested to to to, to yeah leading on from your question to, to understand a little bit more how how you see that agency uh agency um in the the way
2: well as yeah. i say i think i think you know i think there's the agency that is imagined by the state which is the kind of data subject which i'm talking about really where it's a very demarcated form of agency and then i'm trying you know i'm trying to resist <laughs> i'm trying to resist a nostalgic notion of agency mm-hmm. here the, of some humanist subject which can you know come to full political agency but in another way i think there might be an agency which respects this sense of opacity um, you know I don't think that you can you know d- get rid of politics per se just because it's problematic in terms of terms of a humanist subject so there's you know there's all, I'm trying to do all sorts of things all at once mm-hmm. I think, and in ten minutes I probably wasn't as nuanced as I needed to be about that
3: and careful as I need to be about that yeah. um, no, but yeah. I, I think it, it's it's quite interesting. I don't know if you know how Zanilai's work tracking tensions or. But I, I'm wondering if if you could say that in some ways it is. That is performing that kind of of opacity by by sort of, giving us that much information back. You right uh, in the kind of surveillance sous- kind yeah. of capacity.
2: Yeah, I think there's all sorts of different ways of resisting um, this dominant transparent, you know, ideology. Um, transparency ideology I should say Um, and one of them would be data obfuscation you know um, people have written quite a lot about this and it's you know and tried and tested tactic of scrambling knowledge scrambling algorithms by either flooding the system or by holding certain information back which makes the algorithm not work properly or you know so there's all sorts of different ways but I think yeah exactly sort of Trying to appropriate transparency and surveillance and show exactly what it thinks the surveillance state might want or it might be thinking of is an, is one way of doing that. I mean, there's a, it's tactics, isn't it? It's tactics. It's you know resistances. I don't think these are the solutions, but they're sort of you know what little experiments of ways of performing a different kind of transparency or a
1: different kind of secrecy but do those, I mean, those tactics require a knowledge of technology that mm-hmm. is the knowledge that is the agency created for us. If it says that, you know, power resides in an expertise of how these things work, and, and that's what we're saying is kind of already forming us as, a, as a, a disempowered subject to accept that, but to scramble something, to work with an algorithm mm-hmm. is to kind of be the agent that, the knowledgeable agent that your thinking capacity might resist. Mm. Is that mm. that's what you mean? Um. okay, should we <laughs> does anyone have any questions or follow on I
5: just sort of make a comment. The distinction mm. between knowledge and information is an analytical distinction, not a distinction in the real. That has to be a whatever in the mind. Whatever phenomenon is on happening.
4: Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think that we can really see um, a lot of the kind of what, what, I've, what I've been kind of resting on, you know, Seagirt and Kittler to speak about, um, you know, the, the, the framing or construction historically of the social actor as information processor is absolutely a distinction of um, that's, that doesn't exist in the real. It's implemented on the real um, at the level of the symbolic um, through knowledge systems, through um, systems of uh, operationalization. In the workplace, um, through schooling, and so on.
2: And I Absolutely. think even talking about data and knowledge as well, we could, de- you know, obviously deconstruct that opposition nicely.
4: And sort of that, in down. a sense,
5: is a task to bear that in mind, whatever you analyze. Not something, oh, they know the distinction, uh, not a given.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And actually, while we're we're on the on the Lacanian terminology, of course, the real would be incommunicable. So it would, be, it would be in itself resistant. It would be a form of opacity or at least a kind of a horizon for thinking about opacity.
0: Richard. Hi. Um, yeah, thanks for, for such great papers and conversations. Um, particularly from Kristen, from, from your presentation, I kept thinking when you were talking about eyelids, about Jonathan Crary's recent book, 24-7, mm-hmm. in which I guess he posits sleep. As the as the last resistance mm. to to a to a digital capitalism,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and and so I wanted to ask you, I guess all of you about about rhythms or duration, um, and and about this about this kind of twenty 24/7, four seven twenty four seven ness of what we're what we're talking about here, what this does to to various daily rhythms and rituals and things like this.
3: Yeah no, I think that's uh, yeah that's a really good uh, reference uh, and and I think that very it brings together the the, the panel uh, quite well um, and also what what Sarah was saying about uh, uh, speed um, I'm not sure if I can sort of
4: have something Yeah, um, I'm I'm sorry concerned about. The way, and I think it's actually a really interesting book, query's um, book. But I'm slightly concerned about, you know, if if sleep is this kind of horizon of resistance, then the capacity to sleep for large periods is only available to unlucky one of people who probably don't have very much to resist. It's really it <laughs> pessimistic <and> perspective, isn't <laughs> <doesn't> it? <laughs> um, uh, so, while I think kind of it's a way of thinking about dead time mm. or like a non-productive time, I would also question whether the processes are not already in place to try and kind of bring the dead time of sleep to life and, 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 and valorise it um, so maybe we need maybe we do need to think about different kind of temporal structures because maybe even clock time you know the clock time which is the, um, the thing that grounds kind of grand industrial capitalism maybe we've already moved beyond that mode of temporality as something which grounds labour and valorisable labour maybe we've moved into some kind of algorithmic Time, which is parallel and flexible, um, but certainly I think by counterposing, you know, the, the clock time of experience, being awake and being asleep, with um, you know flexible time in that book, there's definitely something interesting there. But I'm slightly, uh, I haven't quite worked through um, how I feel about sleep as resistance,
5: <laughs> as as it's
4: framed in that book.
2: There's also Tom Hodgkinson's stuff on idleness as well, which fits in a little bit with what you're talking about. And again, I'm sort of w- think for the same reasons of privilege and you know idleness as a privileged position to withhold one's labour and yeah, so but it's interesting as a concept yeah.
1: I mean there there is something about um, yeah, I, I think it's that having being flexible with how the the temporality the temporal models that you use to think about um, you know, interactions with technologies or, or how or how we are operative within technological systems. So um, the, the something that sleep does is bring questions of habits and the habitual and the everyday and kind of that sort of uh, Ben Heimel's work on kind of a particular everyday cultural life that I think gets missed from uh, not necessarily critical theories of technology but certainly kind of fictional imaginings of technology and you know that still there is a deference to the sublime in in depictions of technology and that kind of uh yeah i mean the reference to hal earlier or to 2001 earlier is sort of still that kind of that lag um which something like boyhood is interestingly not about and and useful for that um but also that i mean just thinking about you know if you, you can kind of set your I mean in, a, in an entirely superficial way I guess but if your social media profiles can be alerting people to things you're doing that you've preset when you're sleeping <laughs> then there's already that kind of disjunction <laughs> that you, you can be working kind of when yeah. you're not and that's that kind of I think I guess that's partly said sub- point about that we might already be outside of that the, mm. um, the preciousness of that time mm. and that would be that
2: would maybe go back to what I'm saying about vigilance as well the vigilance mm. of the citizen A data subject because actually, you know, the apps do that for you. You don't have to be awake. You know, you've already outsourced that vigilance and that awakeness, that consciousness to something else anyway.
5: And um, that comment kind of um, allows me to bring in my my main question. I want to share two comments first. Um, I I find it interesting that you started your question about, you know, what can we do by referring to the individual or the subject. Mm and not to some kind of cooperative, communal effort. I'm wondering to what extent you're then reproducing exactly those terms, right? Um, and of course we can think of a way of avoiding the big data, the the technology, by simply not using it. I think at a certain point it becomes dystopian or actually impossible to live, but that possibility is out there, even if that means not being functional in the social world, but it is at least theoretically, I suppose. Um, but what I... I'm really curious to listen to is um how you respond to Professor Dimock's earlier keynote. It seems to me that Professor Demok has really emphasized the 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 the, the potential of, of network approaches. He talked about the horizontal hierarchies, whereas you, for good reasons, I think at the same time, talk about, you know, networks as metaphors of empire. Wonderful. There's a you are you seem to be juxtaposed completely, you know. Um, opposing each other but I doubt that this is so clear cut so um, I would love to hear a little bit more on how networks um, function for you because it seems to me that um, when we understand how things function we can better utilize them to whatever way and so that is what I'm really interested in
2: Well one of the things things I'm trying to do in my work um, I've got this term (laughs) it's really a bit messy but the data terriot so instead of um uh, the digitariat, trying to think about the dataariat. So, the, not just data subjects, but thinking about what, what happens if we start to think about those data subjects as a class, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking this through Rancière really, because you know he does some interesting stuff on this term. the proletariat. He says actually we need a term that today is as general and as non-specific as the proletariat once was. Okay. And that data terrier might be, when I said, you know, actually we're all data subjects, you know, it's very difficult not to be a data subject in some, to some degree. And I'm just trying to think, I'm just at the beginning of this project, trying to think through the connections between people and whether, you know, and of course, that doesn't mean that we're all (laughs) potentially resisting. It means that we're all potentially doing both things, right, and that, you know, we are, (laughs) We are working with data but we're being worked on by data and, and, and I think you know that's that that is similar to our relationship or previous relationships with capital. And so I'm trying to think about the connections. I'm not just thinking about subjects, I'm really thinking about publics, classes. <laughs> you know, it's an old fashioned term, but it still might have some kind mm-hmm. of work to do here.
4: Mm-hmm. I think that Bernard Stiegler's um, concept mm-hmm. of proletarianization is useful here, right, so it becomes a process rather than a, a fixed class mm. um, so there are processes of proletarianisation um, of the senses um, that are affected by media systems in a way that's slightly different uh, mm. but not antithetical to you, right they're both in parallel, yeah. in fact, but with um, older modes in which classes are formed Yeah mm. Yeah. No,
3: I, I think it's, it's definitely also a, a, a a term that, that goes into to my work of thinking about visibility and, 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 and invisibility and how we're sort of yeah managed on a on a on a, on a level the below the, the, the individual uh, uh, as a subject um, in in terms of, of algorithms. Because right.
4: really, what I'm what I'm interested in doing is moving away from kind of deterministic questions of how technology um, captures subjects and more about how technologies function within pre-existing systems. And so actually viewed in one way, conceptualising the entire entirety of the social as uh, an information processing system is very much similar to the process um, of the logic of capital. Right. And so then when you put within a, a social system that's managed according to those principles, in when you put into that, other types of data processing systems they kind of knit together in neat ways and so it's about thinking about different social conditions in, in, in concrete right and then thinking about what kinds of technical practices or, or deployments of already existing technologies would be appropriate to that kind of social situation as opposed to one which is basically the logic of neoliberal capital where it's you know it's already very useful to say well the, the individual is just a um, decision unit who just make, basically makes choices between three set um, points
1: I guess there's partly questions of scale as well which might link into the reference the the, the kind of two types of networks that, are, and also that the, the subject that we're thinking about so I think my introduction also began with a single subject not least because I was, I guess it stems from me thinking about my research in a personal way of like what is this kind of drive to think about these particular questions. But, um, but the, the network uh, in Professor uh, Dimock's uh, keynote it is an important scale because it offers something different in that particular analysis of Faulkner in that moment. Um, in a way that perhaps the network is an overused metaphor in this contemporary kind of conversation in the conversation about this. And so uh, say something like the everyday which might involve an individual subject, but is, is an important alternative scale to the network, which kind of takes away a sense of affect, perhaps, to, to how the individual might relate. But also that the everyday is a thing of common practices. And so, although not explicitly in terms of, say, the collective, we can think of this in terms of commonality and common things and shared, not shared, but, but common experiences. And so that's a kind of another way in which it the flexibility of scales or accessing different kind of scales of thinking might be important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Any comments or more questions?
6: Yep. Um, I was wondering if uh, we were to bring another uh, media music into the conversation, would it change the, um, you know, some of the the, the the arguments that we could make? I mean, because I think that you know, this, from a matchup, this is such a common thing and it does show agency to some extent, right? I mean, you know, it's a special kind of digital agency. Um, and, and it does come one, for one, one of the outcomes of networking. Um, and it has come um, kind of everyday implications. I mean, you know, because music is what people listen to. I mean, it's what a company, a lot of people, no matter what they do, you know, you might be cooking, you'll be listening to music. Um, so uh, how, how to figure that into our uh, account? Data
4: you Um <laughs> mm. <laughs> music. Music, music <laughs> and data. Yeah. Um, did, did, did you say the mashup? Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, I feel like it's difficult to separate the mashup as a as a potential form from the way in which most m- mashups that attain any kind of popularity or virality function, right? Which is always about the surprising um, you know how surprising it is to put the two artists together. So it's already reliant on the structure of celebrity in a way which, is, which makes it quite difficult to separate. It's difficult to think, I think, right, what would be um, the, the, the potential for the mashup of two things that nobody knew um, as a form of creativity. I mean, the way that you can combine things, I, I'm not sure that the people, yeah, I mean, I think that, that there's,
6: there's, isn't there some some place where no preference. I mean, you know, two people of equal, two musicians of equal fame. You know, you, you might prefer one to the other. So it does seem to me that it's kind of everyday and kind of low level, personal. Just just a very you know that you, there are two different kinds of music. You know, some people might different genres of music. You know, that you, you 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 like one kind and not another, and that's not something that is necessarily can be dictated to you.
1: I suppose in in sort of following on from the kind of an analytical move that Seb makes that, that in terms of the digitisation sort of music or of both production and dissemination and consumption and kind of you know the the ease with which a non-music professional can make a mashup or what have yeah. you that all these things yeah. are already enabled by the the kind of uh, in, incredibly uh, directed kind of generic categorization of music, that music is always sold in genre, you know, the 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 kind of various issues with the category of world music, which I guess has an, an analogy with world literature, but kind of perhaps even less critically so, I don't know. It um that music is sold is has always already been sold and packaged through so overly determined in terms of taste and labels and as an industry that digitization of music Perhaps it is the first cultural form that kind of raises the first conversations about the loss of uh, financial income for artists, uh, about a kind of the rematerialisation of the object and the fetishisation of vinyl, which kind of is a conversation that happens before the one that takes place about books, I think. Um, and and those things happen because music was already there. It, it was kind of the quickest thing almost to become ubiquitous in terms of its digital uh, form out of I, I don't know I mean uh, maybe those are kind of hugely speculative unqualified statements, but it feels <laughs> like um, music was like was was pre it was ready it was kind of there was already something that had enabled that mode of production and dissemination and listening but I suppose it also uh,
3: uh, feeds into
1: um what kind of of
3: music are we exposed to, and mm-hmm. how are sort of if we're searching for music online, mm. then it's the, the 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 previous searches we made that make yeah. that uh, sort of also determines what comes up in YouTube and what they suggest for us. And then we're in sort of the filter uh filter bubble uh, where where that's uh, sort of we are not uh,
1: mm. <laughs> seeing <laughs> what we might what mm-hmm. we're not know. The YouTube yeah. example is or it's nothing, if not that it's just another form of data, right? The Apple, you know, they can update your phone <laughs> with updating their app and they put you two on it and then music becomes a, yeah, something that isn't within your control or choice or, hmm. or um, uh, this here and then here. <coughs> um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if this is a valid question, <laughs> but it comes from my own kind of interest in... Uh, forms of intimacy enabled or changed or reconfigured
3: through, I guess, the digital and various uh, forms of digitality, And I was wondering about the links between intimacy and privacy, Um, because it struck me that, at least in the first uh, three panels, that that there were bodies, (laughs) or sort of like the the protest sign that you Mm -hmm. shot up was about, that nudie was from my Mm. boyfriend, but it's a particular kind of intimacy sort of flagged up by that and the, the images of the bed, the sort of empty bed where a body once was, that kind of trace of or access to a kind of intimacy. And even the boyhood, yeah. that kind of romanticized childhood, uh, you know, intimacy into his growing up. I don't know. So I, I wondered whether privacy and intimacy are the same thing, or, or what's the relationship between
1: intimacy well, and Well,
2: th- I've been thinking about the different. this is a slightly different question, but I've been thinking about the difference between privacy and secrecy a lot. <laughs> and all, Maybe it's a way into intimacy, but I've been thinking about you know what the difference between that might be and I think you know if you want something to be private today, you have to treat it as if it were secret, and I was thinking about that in terms of intimacy that intimacy uh, to be intimate i <laughs> to be shared um, by two or more people <laughs> but not an infinite number might have to be treated somehow as secret um and my wariness wi- of privacy is obvious, really, just around, you know, private property and um, the implications that privacy has as on the kind of individual subject as opposed to collective agencies. Um, yeah, so, is that the way of answering it? I don't know. That's, so I've been, yeah, I'm thinking about secrecy as a more powerful way of thinking through the possibility for intimacy. Mm. That might be completely wrong, but. But that's the situation we're in. We're, that's enforced. That's forced upon us.
3: That's not a chosen situation. Mm. Um, I'm, yeah. When wouldn't you say intimacy? Maybe I'm. I'm. I'm thinking about it in a different way. But but I'm also. I'm. I'm. I, I'm allowed to think. When. On 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 Facebook, when some of your friends reveal something that feels too intimate, or it sort of becomes uncomfortable. um and I think that's often when I'm confronted with, with with what is sort of feels yeah, too too private or too intimate. Um, and I think that's what's also what I tried to, to get at with, with, with Hassan Eli's piece that that in some way the the private or the intimate only becomes visible by by not being there. Thank you.
0: This podcast is part of our Rupture Crisis Transformation series, offering new perspectives on American studies. You can listen to more podcasts in this series on the Pod Academy website.